The Things We All Carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. Welcome to episode 44 of The Things We All Carry, and welcome to the first show of the new year. This year, I hope to continue to bring you shows worthy of both your time and your interest. I plan to branch out some from firefighters and reach into the world of police, nurses, dispatchers, military, just to name a few. I also plan to bring a variety of professional voices to help teach and enlighten us. The first episode of 2023 finds us in Florida speaking with Christopher. He's been a deputy sheriff in Central Florida for over 20 years. Christopher reached out to me via Instagram and voiced a desire to share his story. He shares his battle with childhood traumas, trauma from his 20 plus years as a deputy, and discusses the methods and routes he's used to facilitate a recovery. A huge thanks to Christopher for stepping up and being my first guest from the world of law enforcement with zero experience in a fire world. His story helps prove that while we're all different, we are still very much alike. A quick reminder to please help us build a community which not only recognizes, but supports each other through the struggles and recovery. Reach out through Instagram at the things we all carry or email my story at the things we all carry.com to offer support and share your story. Please remember to leave a review on iTunes and give a shout out to any first responder you know, love, or care about. Y'all enjoy the show. Hey, Chris, how you doing? Welcome to the show. Hi, I'm good. How about yourself? Doing all right, man. Where, where are you at today? I'm actually at the house today over here in, uh, over in Malta, Florida. So, <laughs> so Longwood is Central Florida, if I'm not mistaken, and yep. from, from my time there. It's it's a little close yep. to where I grew up, and I know that we just, you you found me through some mutual friends in Florida, and you reached out to me, told me you had a story to tell, and so I, we talked the other day, and it was, I decided to go ahead and record a show. Yeah, Absolutely. So tell me a little bit about yourself, where you grew up. Like I said, actually, I grew up in the, the same area I'm living in now, Longwood. Um, this is actually, I'm living in my own childhood home. I grew up uh, here, spent most of my life in Central Florida until I uh, was 17. Uh, I started the enlistment process to, at Army National Guard. I went to Benning for a little bit, came back to Florida, and I've been here for most, most of my life. And so this episode is going to be a little different for me because you're truly the first one that's not fire related at all. So you're in the sheriff's department there in, in Seminole County, correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. Making sure I got the county. I know we talked about it and you've got no fire experience. And so this is the first, you are the first guest other than some of the specialty shows I've done. You're the first guest who's not fire department related and, and you're going to share some of your traumas from the job as a sheriff, as a deputy. Yes. And so this will be new for me and new for my audience. And I appreciate you coming on. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's important to all first responders. We all have similar traumas and experience. So there's some things that make them each one uh, distinctive and individual as well. I think that for law enforcement versus first responder, there's definitely a a different set of stressors that you go into the job accepting. Yep. Yep. We both accept that there's danger in both our Mm -hmm. jobs. The danger is just different from, for our, for each of us in our jobs. Right. And I think we'll, you definitely, we're going to get into some of that, some of what you've been taught and how you've been taught to interact with people outside or around you as a law enforcement, as right. part of law enforcement. Right. All right. So you grew up in Longwood, you grew, you're living in the childhood home right now. So you can't, you can't be, you can't be closer to home No. <laughs> and uh, 17 years. And, and where did you go? You said uh, military after 17 years, correct? Yeah. I, uh, <clears throat> I decided to uh, enlist. I actually was. This is why I'll, I'll go ahead and just kick it up. I, I, at this point, I had it dropped out of school and decided I was going to go into the military, went and got my GED. I had been at that point fired off. You know, like my uncles, a couple uncles were Marines. I had a few that were Army, and I just, oh, I want to be a Marine. So I went to the Marine Corps recruiter, talked to them. And they're like, oh, no, can't take you with a GED. We can take you with, uh, if you get 15 college credit hours. So I, I immediately started trying to get into some college classes, taking some college classes. Coming up closer to my, I was still 17, turning almost 18. The uh, the Army National Guard recruiter I spoke to said, hey, man, we'll we'll take your GED, no problem. So I enlisted in there, 
went up to Benning, trained out, or, or I want to say we, I, I went up there late September, early October, and I finished all training by mid-March because I also was a mortarman. I was, I went into infantry and then I went to, they, they had additional training past that. We went into mortar training and then got done with that. You know, came back home, obviously was, went through the whole recruitment process, you know, initially getting picked up. I had actually met my first wife prior to uh, going up to Fort Benning and, and being in the military. And the funny thing, like we discussed is that he, uh, the, the recruiter did me wrong. He says, uh, Hey, she's pregnant. She was, we're expecting our first baby. I get going, just go ahead and, you know, get married and then you'll get your housing allowance. You'll get this, you'll get all this extra money. Yeah. Went and got married to. My first wife, based on my recruiter's indications that that would be beneficial for my financial status up there in the military. So just a heads up to the young people listening, that is not the way you're supposed to do it. <laughs> no. <laughs> not at all. Yeah, we, I did that and then I got back and we were still together and I decided that I was going to go down the law enforcement route. Um, back in 19, late 1998, I applied because back in the late nineties and early two thousands, it was pretty difficult to get a job in a law enforcement. It wasn't like it is now where they sponsor everybody for every kind of class. So pretty much somebody had to retire or quit or get fired before you could get hired on as a deputy sheriff. You had to put yourself in Florida. You have to put yourself through the police academy and then take the state exam. And then if you're lucky, if an agency picks you up, they'll hire you and then start your certification there there with the exception of a few agencies there's a couple agencies locally the uh, sister police department of orlando and orange county they'll they back then they would sponsor deputy sheriffs but it was impossible to get a sponsorship from them about a lot of extras such as a bachelor's or a minimal bachelor's degree and some other things i decided i was going to go ahead and pick up a, a job as a youth specialist and it was also a, it was a youth specialist slash co-drill instructor it was a uh, Kind of, we did a weekend boot camps with the, the kids. And then during the weekday, we worked with the kids who were on probation. So I got that job back in 19, late 1998, did that for about a year and about the night, late 1990-ish, I want to say the jail was hurting for correctional deputies. And uh, so they offered at this point to, uh, let me back up just a second. So the reason I couldn't get into the police academy was because my wife was working part-time as a, like a waitress in the Tijuana Flats. I didn't, I was the only one that was bringing the money in. And so I couldn't afford to put myself in the academy. And back then, like we discussed before, vocational, GI bills didn't cover vocational. So I couldn't get the military to cover my, for a police academy, it had to be college type style classes, uh, running towards a degree. By that point, when they had heard there was a sponsorship that they were going to put somebody through the academy to go through for correctional deputy. I decided to go ahead and take that opportunity and become a correctional officer. I did that. It was uh, easy because what, when that part was easy because when I went into it, they actually paid for my academy. They paid for me to be there. I still had all my benefits, my health insurance, all that. Completed that, got my certification. They paid for my state exam. And oh, Becca was saying, because yeah. I think you're said you that you, yes they paid for it and and you kept everything because you were working the second the other job as well so i think do, we talked about how brutal that schedule was for you though and, and it got worse when i went to do the crossover okay yeah the crossovers were really really where it got brutal okay um, so i miss i misspoke then so yeah yeah i, yeah, no, I will they, edit it, that part out yeah no it was a full transition over to corrections okay and actually what happened is during downtime uh through the academy they had weekend or weekend off or your hours weren't met because we worked 80 we work 86 hour two weeks so and it doesn't count for overtime until it hits over 86 so if your hours were low you had to go into the jail and work for a little bit and they would try to knock out some of your what we call field training and so that got through that got my state certification got fully set up went through my training process, got assigned to booking and intake as a, a correctional deputy in there. And then I decided, Hey, I, I still want to go to the road. And by this point, making a little bit more money, it wasn't a lot of things. Then it was like $21,000 a year. It was ridiculously a low amount, but it was a lot more than the 17 or 18 I was making while I was a civilian. I then conquered down. I started taking the crossover program and that's where this things got really tight for four months. I literally worked 12 hour, I worked on our, what we called our Bravo shift, which was the night shift. It was 5.30 at night till 5 or 5.30 at night till 6 o'clock in the morning. So it was like 12 point, whatever, 12 and a point, 15 hours or something like that. It was 
from 5.30 at night till 6 in the morning when they get the final head count, when they got the final head count, then our, our call, community colleges across was only like a couple blocks over from the jail. I would drive literally over to the jail, park in the parking lot, and sleep in my car for about an hour or so till the class would start at 8, go in, take my class, go through the day of that. I would get out around 3.30, 4 o'clock. Then I would usually drive back over to the jail, take a nap in my car again, and then go back to work at 5.30 and uh, rinse and repeat. And, you know, we worked the various, like I said, we worked two days on, two days off, three days on here. And there were some days it wasn't consistently like that, but it was majority of the time like that. And so I spent a lot of time taking naps in cars and parking lots of the college and the jail before work or school for four months. And so then after those four months, what, what do you, what is the result of those four months for you? Then I had to go retake the state exam again, which I did. I went and retook our, our Florida state exam through the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. And then I would continue to work in the jails correctional. I applied for patrol at that point. I tried to apply to internal transfer for a road patrol and I was not expecting to get it. I was told by everybody in jail, it takes five years. It takes five years for you'll ever see it. It was about, I'd been in there for about a year and a half by this point. I got the call, got told I was going to get it. And so I did, I, I got the, they said, Hey, March, we're going out. You'll, you'll be starting in March. And which was funny because like I, like I explained to you the other day, we're going through, uh, for, cause I was a part of the critical response team within the jail and part of that sort we got through all the same certifications, you're less lethal and everything. One of the things is pepper spray and there's, they're like, oh, we're going to pepper spray you today. And I'm like, ah, it was, I think it was like January. It was either January or February. I'm like, ah, the next month or so I'm going on the road. They're going to do it again. They're like, no, if you do it now, you won't have to do it again. I'm like, okay. So then of course the guy that was the one that was deploying it on me, it was mad. He was one of the, he was upset with me because he wanted to go to the road. He didn't get selected and I did. So he. He really put it, put a lot of OC on me <laughs> and that stuff's miserable. So then I went, of course, fast forward into March and I get up to training and then they're like, oh yeah, guess what we're going to do? And I said, okay, cool. I'm out for this one. And they're like, nah, you got to do it again. Lieutenant says, you got to do it again. I'm like, oh, uh, seriously. So I had to get, <laughs> get pepper sprayed again. Need to say fast forward there. I got onto the road. So when do you start on the road? That was around March of. 2001, I want to say, I think it was March, 2001 is when I started as a road deputy sheriff. And since then, everything has been centered on the road or some part of, of the sheriff's department for you. Correct. Yeah. Everything at that point was based in the road division so or, now or based in law enforcement itself. There's so now you're looking sheriff. at 21 years with the, as a deputy sheriff. Correct. Which, I mean, that's a long time. Right. Yeah, it's, it's definitely, definitely, <laughs> it definitely adds up after a while. So I want to go back because you mentioned before the army that you had started skipping class and, and school wasn't much of a thing for you and you ended up getting your GED. And I know we talked about some of the reason we talked about the history that you had as a child yes. and maybe this, cause I think that probably is what led you to skipping school and fighting and that reaction. I don't know if yeah. you agree with that or not, but I, I suspect that that's the reason why. Yeah, I think it had a lot to do with, with a lot of my behavior early on in life. Um, and it, 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 basically it happened was early on in my childhood. You know, like I said, I, my parents, I never even told them about this. I was sexually abused by an older next door neighbor. It was probably, I want to say, you know, memory serves me correct. I was probably maybe six or seven at the oldest and he actually had abused me, uh, and I want to say he was like 15 at the time or 16 and he used video games because this is back when Nintendo was cool. You know, Nintendo was the newest thing. He'd use video games to get us over and then use things to make us do things. And so there was about almost, uh, it was just about close to a year of that being done to us consistent, you know, not consistently, but a lot, you know, it happened multiple times. And at that point. I don't know. Maybe I felt the world have everybody was staying. If we're going to give you something, we want something. And then there's just, I didn't trust people. I started, you know, trusting less. And there was a lot of tension and anxiety was building up in the home. And I don't know a good word for it, but I was not real receptive of the, the world in general because of what I had experienced. I think consciously and subconsciously from that experience. And so I started going down the road, hanging out with the wrong kids. I was always getting in a fight, experimented with, you know, marijuana. I was drinking and, and 
staying out late all night, running around the neighborhoods, doing a lot of stupid stuff. Uh, you know, he had school. I, it was to the point where I would be in school and the teachers, I was that kid. Everybody knew that I was always in fights outside the, outside the cafeteria and the teacher, would, you know, I'd get in the classroom and the teachers, Chris, are you going to actually do any work today? And I'm like, nope. And he's going to get the hell out of my class and go see the principal and I just walk off campus. At, at age six, like you said, you, he was 15, this person was 15, you were around six years old. How do you extricate yourself from that? How, do, how does it end after just a year? I want to say he moved. So you just, in, and this is going to sound weird, but you just got lucky that he moved. I, I, I did. I, I got caught in it. I don't know why I didn't. I don't know why I didn't get out of it. You're uh, six, maybe, first of all. Yeah. Yeah. So, man, I, I didn't totally probably understand it. Didn't, didn't see the whole of everything. And like I said, he was older, he was older kid. I mean, in my head to this day, I, he was like an adult to me. I look back now, it's like, he's a 15 year old punk, but <laughs> right back then it was like, he was an adult. Of course it was because you are looking up to him and, and you're, he was right. someone you wanted maybe not to emulate, but somebody you're looking for that approval. Yeah. Yep. hundred percent. And yeah, I, yeah, I just got lucky. He moved. And I, 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 don't know. I, I don't know where he's at in this world today. And I don't even remember his last name. It's just like, I got lucky. I got lucky. He's gone. So you don't just, tell anybody, is there, do you, I don't want to, I don't want to spoil any story, any part of the story, but yeah, is, yeah, is yeah, there yeah. ever a time that you deal with that specifically? Yeah. It'll come up later on. Okay. Uh, when I got a position within the agency, I did just real quick. I kind of went through the law enforcement Thing. I did the boot camps, the youth specialist. I went into the jail, got to start the road. And then I, I was on the road for about a year and a half, went back into the juvenile division as a, like a detective position where we assisted with juvenile probation officers. And we were responsible for supervising these kids and arresting if they needed to be arrested for violations, absconding from supervision. So we did a fugitive kind of thing. We were also responsible on the, the our gang, multi-agency gang task force. We worked with the feds and all the local police departments. And so I did that. And then and one of the other things that, that one of the reasons I, I liked y'all's show and I also wanted to get back on it is throughout my career, there was a lot of friends of mine in law enforcement that had committed suicide or worse during the process of committing the suicides. And about that time before I had actually got before, it was right around a little bit before September. I want to say I had a buddy of mine who was a Sanford police officer. He killed himself and was having marital issues and I guess felt it was the way to go and killed himself. That one was a hard hit, but we moved forward. And then, of course, September 11th happened. And of course, we all remember watching the news that day when that happened. I remember. And December, you're still National Guard at this time. Yep. Yeah. I was still on the National Guard. And so, yeah, seeing that, I was like, oh, because there was Saddam was showing his ass throughout our every dialogue. There's stuff going on. There's stuff going on. And our, our intelligence people are like, yeah, yeah, just be ready, be ready. And then you see the World Trade Center is getting hit by airplanes and the Pentagon. You know, all you could think about is, oh shit, it's happening. <laughs> right. It's just, it was just like in a constant loop of repeat, just all you saw. In fact, I do remember because one of the guys I worked with was, is, was a captain over our National Guard unit and he was in the intel side of it. And uh, he actually came up to me. He says, Chris, he says, when are you getting out? Because I was getting close to ETS by that point. For, the, for and, those of you not familiar, ETS is estimated uh, termination date. Something along those lines. Yeah. And end of term and something yes. service. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So in time service or something like that. Yeah. And so I was getting close to it and I was actually going to be out shortly before any of the, everything had really started kicking off. They'd already sent, they already had already sending units over to Afghanistan for the, uh, the operation enduring freedom. And he I told him, I said, yeah, I get out. I want to say, oh, yeah, it was April. And I was at my ATS in April. He says, oh, he just shook his head and says, ah, oh, don't. Don't hold on to that. So he walked away and I'm like, well, I guess you can't talk about it. He said, no, I can't. So I just remember distinctly still doing my job, doing things, going to work and then come back to, uh, remember it was Christmas day of 2002. I had a good time. I was still with my current wife, my two kids. They went through Christmas, celebrated. And then I remember the next day I went to the grocery store, had some things I had to get. Coming up the stairs, because I was a courtesy officer in one of these apartment complexes. And my, back then we had pagers. My pager went off. And so I picked it up and I called it. And it was my uh, squad sergeant. He says, hey, man, we're deploying. 
be at the uh, armory tomorrow at, at, at you know i think it was zero six hundred or something like that and i was like oh shit it's happening <laughs> yeah we get there december 26 2002 get up to the uh, armory i was part of the first division because i was a mortarman i read one of the 81 mics and so they were getting us ready we went up to fort uh, stewart where we were piecemealed uh, out through a lot of different uh, units and our entire companies were sent off with certain units. They piecemealed a lot of our unit and headquarters unit actually didn't get almost nobody got deployed from the headquarters unit, except for a couple of guys from my platoon and then our entire scout division. Cause they were all obviously trained for long-term reconnaissance and operations of that nature. They got deployed. We, we were training off and on and getting ready. We went through the whole anthrax series and did all that. And issued out full desert gear, went through all the briefs and all that stuff. And after about six months, they were like, yeah, we're not sending the rest of you over. We're done. The push, had, we, we had watched through the push for Iraq. Once the push through Iraq, it kicked in. I guess they didn't realize they didn't need us anymore. So at this point, they kicked us back. And so then... I, I, oh, but I, I got hit with Operation Stop Loss. That's why he shook his head. That's why the captain earlier, I'm sorry. He shook his head when he asked him how I was getting out. Operation Stop Loss got me and kept me in over. We came back and I felt a lot of guilt for not going over with my buddies. I felt a lot of guilt of not being a part of that and beat myself up a little bit about it. But I was like, no, what can I do? It is what it is. But I had also found out during my deployment, I go back to this, this mental health of law enforcement. I had found out one of my buddies who was also a deputy sheriff had killed his wife and then killed himself over marital issues. So this was two people now I had known in my career that had ended their lives. And this, and unfortunately this time killed their own, their own family. Starting to start to see a pattern and you know, things are starting to seem a little weird. So then I came back and I reported back to our, our juvenile division, back into the, what we call the intensive community supervision unit. And I did that for about another uh, year or two. And then I decided I wanted to go back to the road as a road deputy sheriff to try to increase more skills and get more ability to promote. During that time, I started still feeling some, some stuff, which I think came back from my childhood trauma, came back from my earlier traumas. Some other things started living a little more risky. I was drinking. By this point, I was having a lot of extramarital affairs on my, my current or my, or my ex-wife. And I think a lot of times it was just that, that, and that need to feel alive, that need to kill the numbness, the, to get that adrenaline, that, that excitement that started to go away. And that, that makes sense because I think we've talked about on the show with other mm. firefighters and, and we've talked about that chaos. Right. Almost scared to live in the calm and all, looking for that chaos. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And it's actually funny because my wife and I, my current wife today, she's actually detecting with us. She made the comment that she had overheard a thing and it made sense that we as first responders oftentimes create, <laughs> create chaos in our lives if we don't have it because <laughs> we thrive best in it. Yeah. I, I've heard that a few times, actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Does that behavior go unchecked during this time or does she know uh, about it? It, it, it? There was a couple of times again, I had left and she had knew about that. We got back together, went through this a few different times, but it was just, I don't know why she kept allowing me to come back, but she did. She kept allowing me to come back. And of course, during this period, I had now had another coworker. He, he had just retired, but he was still, you know, a friend and, and a coworker and he had killed himself in a local uh, state park and had left it for our department to find him deceased. And now we're, we're I'm running up, you know, three coworkers that I've known that have, that have done one of the most extreme acts to themselves that one can imagine. So I think between that, my childhood traumas, things just start building up and you're exposed to a lot when you're working out here, you're seeing a lot of things, you're seeing bad, you're constantly engaging negativity because we're not going to people's houses because they're happy. We're not going to these calls. We're not, we're not dealing with people when they're in their best of times. We're dealing with people in their worst of times. And you don't get to see a lot of the positive sides of life. So you just start seeing consistent negative behaviors, consistent negative actions, consistent negative. And it starts really just piling up on you after a while. And this is when I want to say around 2013, 2014, I was just still having a lot of issues, decided at this point I was done. That was, it was fair to her, fair to me. 
we'd been together, I think almost 19 years at this point or 17 years. I don't remember. It was, we were, we've been together for a long time. And I just, I decided to pull a plug and I decided I was going to get the divorce. So I filed for the divorce, even though you're filing for a divorce, this, it seems like it just as stressful as the person who's just had a dump on. We've got, by this point, we had four kids together and it was just kicking my butt every day at work. I was still, I was drinking. I was, you know, still doing a lot of dumb stuff off duty, not so much on duty, but just off duty and doing dumb things and trying to keep that living feeling, that chaos out. And I know one time I had, I had a sergeant that I was working for, I had, I had met up with him listen, man, this is what's going on. I actually started crack with him and, and he just like, whoa, 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 I got yourself. We're not doing that here. We're not doing that here. Just get yourself in check, get yourself in check. And then, because still we're several years into the mid two thousands and showing feelings and having emotions and, and we're supposed to be the, the tough people. We're not supposed to have that. So it was, he didn't want to see it. At that point you were trying to talk to somebody and he just didn't, he didn't think that was the time or the spot for one. Yeah. He shut it down. He didn't, I, I just, maybe it made him uncomfortable. I'm not sure. We never really readdressed it again. You know, I just, his, his question was, do, do you really want to get a divorce? And I'm like, yes, well then do it. And that was it. And then, like I said, when we talked previously, I'm on our peer support team, which is now what back then it was a critical incident stress management team. And we dealt with any time officers or, or any employee was involved with a high traumatic situation, whether it be a, a line of duty death, any type of major traumatic situations, whether it be a call that was really bad or something that occurred in their presence or, you know, a really bad scene that just, they weren't handling right. We're the ones that would, they would call to come out and we're off or on duty. Didn't matter. You went out and you went to that person and you would try to help them get through the stress and start trying to find resources for them. I was one of those teams because all those, this led up to all those previous suicides. I'm like, we've got to do something to, to stop the suicide. So when they offered this program, I got into the program. And so of course now I'm the one that needs help. I'm feeling like, man, I'm really, I'm, I'm struggling with the divorce. I now just started seeing, I was, I was also in the middle of seeing my, my, she was my zone partner at the time. And now my girlfriend, who's now my wife, I was just like, there's a lot going on in my life. The kids are stressed out. I'm stressed out. There's, I felt at this point, I wasn't going anywhere in my career. I felt like I had hit a wall and I just, it was just like everything that could go wrong was going wrong. I just felt like the world was just kind of collapsing in. And, you know, you just, you went to work, you held together long enough to make it through the shift. And then you went home and you just did what you needed to do, you know, whether it was drinking or just going out or whatever it is, just to try to keep your, trying to keep yourself together. So I, we did these monthly meetings of this uh, critical excellence stress management team. And we would sit down and they would discuss, Hey, what are we doing for these cases? What are we doing for this? What are some more training we can do? Just basic run of the mill types of meetings. And. I obviously didn't seem all there with it. I was just standoffish. I, I pushed my chair back in a corner. It was just a kickback, arms crossed. And I just, anytime anybody would say something and I just, I, I would give a negative response to it. And I'd irritated a couple of people in the meeting, but I was like, I just, I'm like, why is nobody else picking up on these? These are, I'm, I'm, I'm presenting all the classic cues that we're supposed to detect and we're supposed to watch out for and nobody's picked up on it. And so I just, I leave the meeting, we're done. I get a call from the, the manager two hours, or maybe it was the next day. It matter a few hours, maybe it was the next day. He says, Hey, can you meet up with me? And I'm like, yeah, I'll meet up with you. And I'm like, what did I do now? He would get together and we'll roll up in a parking lot out somewhere. And he says, Hey man, everybody just seemed like you didn't want to be there. And, and I'm like, okay, yeah. So maybe they did pick it up. You know, I'm thinking maybe they did pick it up. And they just seemed like you don't really want to do this. And I'm like, no, I do want to do this. And he's like, they were really put off with the way you were acting yesterday and they don't think you want to do this anymore. And then basically if you don't want to do this, just leave, just quit the team and go. So the team that's supposed to observe that something's going on and step in and do some help, observe something's going on and then ask you to leave. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, it was a big kick in the teeth. And of course my pride's still too high. Like, I'm not even going to say it. I'm just going to let it go. I'm like, I told him, I said, no, nope, I'll work on it. I, I, I won't do it again. I'll, I'll keep, I still want to be a part of the team, but it just, it blew my mind. It was like, man, I'm presenting all the classic symptoms that we've been trained to look for and nobody's picked it up. And then without me throwing a flag up and going, I need help. I need help. <laughs> 
it just wasn't coming across. And I don't know if maybe to this day, I still don't understand that. And, and we've got a good team and, and my agency's taking strides to this day to, to really work towards mental health. And now, and it was more so that than it used to be, but I just couldn't figure out why that it wasn't picked up then. What year yep. was that? I want to say that was right around the, the, the time of the divorce. So 2014, maybe 2015-ish. And then um, the next big step for you career-wise is, is a huge one, correct? Yep. Yep. So I, I then had been dating my, my zone partner. We had a getting together. And so at this point, I wanted to get back to doing investigative work. I love investigations. was everything to me. It's what I wanted to do. So I decided I applied and there was a couple of different things I applied for, but I, got, I had finally gotten selected for crimes against children, which is a, a unit that's, you know, there were investigating sexual crimes, child pornography, child deaths, homicides, abuse, things of that nature. Anything that would be the equivalent of an adult major crimes would be what we did as, as a, for anybody under the age of 18. I got selected in 2015 and actually started in the unit in 2016. Now, once again, I had never shared my childhood traumas with anybody and probably looking back now, I probably should have thought about it a little harder before accepting the uh, position once I had interviewed for it. I should probably never interview for it, but I get into that, I get into that unit and it was just, it was a lot of exposures and we're, we're going through digital media, they do crime line tips and reviewing images that are of children being abused or sexually molested, going on cases where family members and neighbors are, are abusing or neglect or, or molesting and sexually uh, abusing these young children. I was struggling a little bit with that. Then that stress was getting a little bit, it was building up more. And then I had that case where we had a, a homicide where the father tried to kill his wife. And he did kill the wife, went back, got his kids later on, got into a shootout with the deputies and then killed him, the kids and then killed himself. Got to the scene. I, I get in that car. I see these two dead, you know, little babies. They were, they were, I want to say three years old. It was the younger and two was two or it was two and three or two and four. I can't remember. They were really, there were little babies and it just, I can still tell you a lot about the scene. I can remember seeing the blood coming to the door scenes. I can remember the how he was positioned, how they were positioned. I could close my eyes and see it even to this day. And so we did our investigations, preliminary investigations, our interviews, we were doing, going through the stuff, going through the motions. And then we had to get the medical examiner out of there. And that medical examiner got out there and I'll give it to them. Those, those, that lady did a phenomenal job with what she did out there. She took that baby out of that car and she handled that, ch that child as if she was still alive, talked and sweetie, we're going to do this to you now. We're going to put you here. We're going to, but when I'm looking at her, hold this little girl. And, and I had a little girl at the time, same age, same body build. And it just, I just started seeing my girl. I'm looking at her and I'm going, holy fuck, that's my, that's my kid. I'm like, oh man, they have snap out of it. That's not your kid. And that really started beating into me, beating down, beating me down. But and then I got to go back to work. And that was, we worked that scene 24 hours. We were nonstop. And then we kicked off for a couple hours of rest. We had to come back for more. And until this entire investigation was cleared out, we had been able to present what needed to be presented to the sheriff and the media and so on and so forth. So continuing down the path, working, continuing in the unit, I had, uh, the, one of the last cases I got was, uh, another child and it was two twin children, boys. One was a younger boy. And by this point, my, my wife and I were married and I had a baby with her and they were starved to death. And one of the boys was probably not much younger than mine, mine. And one of the things we had to do when we were in that unit is any kind of death involving children, we were to attend the autopsy. So we had to sit in the autopsies and watch the autopsies occur. And I remember looking at that kid and on that autopsy table and I was like, that's my kid. That's my boy. And it just, it really was, I, I just couldn't get these images out of my head. They were trying to close my eyes and seeing these things. And it's just like, can't get it out. Once again, start going, maybe I'll drink chill out, relax, just do what I can to try to calm down. And, and I'm like, I just can't get out of my head. I didn't want to bring it on my wife. We talked a little bit, but I didn't want to burden her too much, but she knew it was kind of, I was, the stress was getting to me. So we decided one day we were going to go out to one of the local Springs and we're going to just take the kids out and we're going to have a good time and just relax and 
chill. I think it was a little warmer. I had brought some beers. We're having some beers. And I had was texting a, a coworker who I had thought I could trust to confide into, and which looking back now, and I think he probably did probably what was right. I wasn't real happy about it when he did back then, but I told him what was going on. I told him I'm struggling. I'm seeing these things. I can't get it out of my head. It's just, it's tough. I don't feel good about it. I was having issues with one of my fellow detectives. I wasn't getting along with him. And so just venting to him through text messages. And this was like a, like a Saturday. Sunday comes by, Monday rolls around. I get to work and I get a call from my lieutenant. Hey, meet me at the office. And our building is separate. Way, we're a separate satellite station from where the main sheriff's office is. So I'm like, okay. So I'm like, what's going on? He's like, we need to talk. Just come to my office. We'll sit down. We'll talk about it. So that was probably one of the longest drives of my life. I get to his office. I sit down. He says, hey. I talk to him. I'm like, oh, shit. I know what's where this is going. And uh, he said, obviously, there's a lot going on. Things aren't working out for you with this. There's, it's obviously creating issues. He was concerned. He was. He said he told me he was reluctant to tell me, but he said, based on all these things, and once again, we've got a lot of people in this agency that have, that have harmed or, or, or killed themselves. And they were worried about my well-being. He says, hey, I, there's a time you got to call it. He says, I, I think you need to reevaluate your, your place in the unit at this point. And I said, I've always been one of those people. I'm not going to quit. I don't quit. I don't give up. But when I was in the military and I remember finishing up infantry basic and the last thing we had to do was a five mile run in 45 minutes. And I've never been a really strong, fast runner. And I remember hitting that fifth mile coming across that line and I was four minutes and like 45 minutes and 35 seconds past what I had to be. And they're like, you're not going to graduate if you don't pass this eagle run. That was, that was called the eagle run. And I was like, I'm not going to fail. I'm not going to fail. So they gave me two more days to come back at it. And I came back at it. And I, I think I dang near killed myself, but I did it 38 minutes. <laughs> it's, so I'm one of those people. I'm like, if I'm, if, if this is what I'm going to do, I'm going to succeed. I'm going to do it. I'm going to finish it all the way through. Um, and so I, I looked at him and I said, I don't want to quit. Lieutenant. I, I want to, finish what I started. And then, like I said, I had that case going. I had a few other cases that I was still working. I wanted to finish it. I wanted to, I wanted to bring these people to justice. I wanted to make the arrest. I wanted to get the warrants. And he's like, no, Chris, I'm telling you, you need to reevaluate. And I says, Lieutenant, I'm not going to do it. And he says, I says, is this one of those things If I'm going to tell you, you're going to tell me I don't have a choice either way. And he's yeah, pretty much. So he said, you got till this date, tell us where you want to go. We'll get you where you want to be. And also we're going to refer you to our internal EAP program for counseling and some follow-up because there have been some drinking and there have been the dimension of the, of the uh, just not feeling right in the head. I drive back, meet up with my, my unit sergeant. He was like, oh, we'll try to get you, see if we can keep you inside, put you in another investigative unit. And then eventually he had to come back and say, yeah, we can't do it. They won't let us do it. And I'm like, man, I'm being punished. I'm being punished for not feeling right. And I, I vented probably more than I probably should have to somebody. And now I'm being put back on the road, but they worked with me. They put me in a position. I asked where they asked me what area I wanted to work and what shift. And I, at that point, I'm like, I, I, I love the night shift, but day shift is more conducive for family. I'm like, put me on day shift over here if I could get this. And they gave it to me. They really worked with me in that respect. But so yeah, that uh, that's where that childhood trauma stuff kicked back up. So I followed up with the EAP. I wasn't really getting along with a lot of the therapists they had. I did eventually end up going in to see a psychiatrist. They did give me to take some, start taking some medications with help, which helped a little bit, but I still faced a lot of these things. It, it kind of curves it a little bit, but it doesn't really get rid of it. It kind of, it takes the edge off. Yeah. So I, it was something that I had to start working on. So that's why I started working on towards looking towards self-mastery. And, Explain self-mastery to us. What, what you your know, version is at least. Yeah, just being able to reflect in and learn to control your emotions, your anxieties through uh, reflective thought, writing. I, I started taking, because our agency provides uh, jujitsu training for free for employees, internal, physical, mental. I started kind of getting into meditation and, and just trying to find myself within and find a spiritual balance internally, basically trying to calm my own demons and then finding, and, and it's a multi pronged approach. It's not just doing meditation. It's not just exercise. It's a combination of everything. Controlling what you're putting in your body, controlling what you're doing, what you're exposing yourself to, understanding that you got to have times out. When you get off of work, it's time to get off of work. That's massive right there. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And that's a tough one. <laughs> it's a very tough one. And we, I've talked about this on the show with other people. Um, it's the fact that we have to stop identifying as a cop or mm-hmm. stop identifying as a firefighter because you're a man who happens to work as a law enforcement officer. Absolutely. And Absolutely. that's the it's identification. You're a husband. You're a father. You're a, you're a brother. You're a son who happens yep. to be a law enforcement officer. Yes. Yes. And that gives you that delineation to be able to, to, for, you know, for the visual to clock out at the end of the day and walk away from it. Yep. Absolutely. And that's, that's key. That's why I tell a lot of my new guys, cause you know, it's the fortunate part of being a, a supervisor or sergeant right now is I can take these experiences I've gained in my career and I can now give it down to these guys. And I know what to look for. And if I start seeing these things that I was doing, or I was demonstrating, I start seeing it and I recognize it immediately. And I start trying to address it. They aren't always open about it, but I'm going to try. I'm going to give them all the resources I can and really try to, to give them some of the opportunities in their career that I was never uh, afforded, given obviously the time where we were at in our careers. You say that your, your organization offers jujitsu training for employees. Correct. What does that bring you? I tried to explain this the other day to one of our, our analysts, you know, cause they were, they were taught, we were talking about PTSD and they were former military. And to me, it, there's the, the component of strength training, expending the energy, but there's also focus and learning to control yourself during what we call rolling or where sparring, you're looking at that moment of control or to, you know, of either getting them into a guard and controlling to gain your breath, learning to combat breathe, forcing yourself to get that oxygen. And then try to calm your mind to find the next step. And it's always looking for that next step. And, and, and for someone like me, there's always, I, I say I have a very chaotic brain. My brain is just constantly going. I can't shut it off. It's very hard to keep it, to find that silence. And when I'm doing the jujitsu, I mean, or any, probably any kind of martial art, you're focused solely on that. And you're hundred percent focused on it. It's not like you're trying to pick up a book and you're reading and you're, you're starting to think about, well, this, and you're, you're hundred percent focused on doing that one little task and it, and it almost helps you find that silence. And when I get done, it's like, it's, it's a real big high. <laughs> it's a real big high body, your body and mind just became one and you feel almost kind of centered. Yeah. That, that calm is a rare thing for, for many of us that, right. that brain getting your brain to shut down is, is a yes. rare thing for a lot of us. And very, it's very difficult, man. Yeah. And the more I, people I talk to, the more I, I see, yeah, you're right. It's not uncommon. It's not uncommon at all. You know, and then of course, recently, I actually, funny part is I, my wife is a, is, is a, an avid dachshund lover and I've always been had German shepherds all my life and I'm a hundred percent German shepherd, big dogs. I don't want little dogs. And I broke down last year and got her a dachshund for right before Christmas. And, uh, she actually wanted to get it into her unit to be a, a comfort dog. And so it went through all the therapy and training and all that. We weren't able to make it because of insurance issues. The sheriff's office eventually said, no, we can't do it. But I actually find having him too is a huge help because he just, it's like, he picks up when there's tension and stress and he just comes right up to you and he just gets in your lap and he just rolls around petting you. He's just happy. It's your joy coming at you. No negativity. Yeah. And obviously I'm still working towards like more therapy, uh, like maybe like we discussed EMDR or somebody that's more of in person. I'm not a fan of this virtual visits therapy, but if it works for people, that's great. Just, it's not one of those things that works for me. I, I read through the notes that we had that we created the other day when we spoke and what well, I think that was what, 10 days ago, I think. And you added a bunch to, to the notes and, and there's there's a lot of death in yes. your experience on the job. There's a lot of suicide from your coworkers. There's a, there's a lot of murder, which yeah. I guess to be in, to be expected with the, the type of job that you have. I, I don't want to focus too much on that because it goes goes without saying that you experienced that, and right. that's gonna that's gonna add traumas to you. I want to talk about the thought that you brought up in the notes about everyone was out to kill you. Yeah, that yeah. you experienced. Yeah, it was one of the things that was early on taught on to us, especially in the old school mindset is everybody's a potential, is a potential bad guy. Everyone you deal with, they're, they're, they may try to kill you. You've got to be prepared. You've got to be mentally ready. You've got to stay on the, on, on the on threat level red. You got to stay up there. And their mantra is always the hand, watch the hands will kill you. 
that was always the thing. Watch the hands will kill you. So everybody, you're always watching hands. You're looking for bulges. You're watching what is what movements are they making? Are they doing tactical positioning? Are they setting up for a flight or are they setting up for a fight? And you just never could turn that off. And it, it got it gets so bad that you couldn't even off duty. You're always looking, people. You're always who is going to be the the guy that's going to try to kill me. Who's going to be this person? Whether you're on duty or off duty, you sit in a restaurant, you sit with your back to a wall. You don't want to be, you don't want to have your back to a window. You're always just, and it, it gets so bad that like now I'm, I don't even like going out on days off. It's, that's one of my toughest things that I struggle with is getting out of the house. I can get out and go run. I can get out and go to work. I can get out and go do my training, but to get out and do things, just go see a movie or go to a concert or even go to the grocery store, it creates this huge amount of anxiety and stress for me. Because I immediately go into, I'm constantly watching, I'm scanning, I'm looking, I'm, what is the next problem that's going to present itself to me? Next threat. How do you defeat that? That or, one, I, or can you? That is the one of the one of the ones that I'm still battling with. I, I don't really know how to beat that because, unfortunately, there's, it's what keeps you alive. But I also think it can kill you. At the, okay. Yeah, I, that's what I was going to say. Because if you drop that mantra and you're on the job and you let that slide, then you set yourself up for disaster. Correct. But you keep that mantra off the job and you also set yourself up for some sort of disaster. Yeah, absolutely. And, and whether it be one of the, one of the things that, that, that's always discussed about it is law enforcement is within three to five years of retirement, most cops die. Whether it be through heart attack or, or some type of health condition or whether even suicide, but usually just a lot of deteriorating health, rapid deteriorating health. And I think it's because you can't drop that. You're constantly in a state of heightened vigilance. And it's not healthy. You're constantly, you're, the, the amount of hormones your body's probably dumping that are not healthy, whether it be adrenaline or whatever else is, is, is going on, it's just not healthy. And I think that has a lot to do with why a lot of cops, a lot of my buddies, how we talk about a lot of us that we're getting close to retirement is you've got to find a, you've got to find a hobby. You've got to find something that's going to pull you out of that zone. But while at work, you just can't be out of that zone. So it's, that's where that's that, that trying to go home and go off duty yours. We say 10, seven, I'm off duty, 10, seven, done and separate the two. How does it affect your interaction with people on a day-to-day -day basis, not just your interaction with, with your world, but the people specifically, have you, where's your, I don't know, I guess for lack of a better, where's your trust level with people? I'm very low, very, I'm very apprehensive. And, and there's, there's a couple different reasons. One being is, is that cop mindset. What, what are you doing? What's your angle? Where are you coming at? And some of it comes from the sexual abuse and trauma. I think I suffered as a kid. What is your angle? What is it you want from me? And I'm always sizing everybody up. I'm always looking for threats. Do you have something that could be a threat to me? Are you showing, are you demonstrating behavior that could be, that I could perceive as a, a, a potential threat behavior? I'm always looking for the threats. I'm always looking for what are you trying to do to take advantage of me? And what are you going to do that's going to be a threat to me? How does, I don't, I don't know where I was going to go with that question. Um, trying to phrase that because I, I don't want to ask the same question again. Um, right. <clears throat> Maybe I missed it. Oh, no, I think you answered it. I, I, I think I, my brain is still a little bit of a fog from being sick. So I apologize. Sure. The, the other part that I wanted to talk about was the suicides. It's obvious that there's a problem with both fire and police with suicides. Yes. One of the things that we do as a whole, as a fire service as a whole, is we don't like to talk about the suicides. We, uh, mm -hmm. we, we pretend that some of them aren't suicides. We, we don't talk about the numbers. We don't talk about a solution. What, how is that treated in the law enforcement world? Are you, is it out there? Are you guys talking about it? It has recently started coming to the surface. They actually, this year, we, we just implemented back to an old system we used to do called block training. And one of the the days in the classes discussing stress and, and mental health. And they bring in a nurse that comes in and talks about it. But we're talking in my entire life, because my father was a deputy sheriff with the, with, the law, with the sheriff's office since I was born. My entire life in, in law enforcement, that was always taboo. So we're now 40, maybe we started looking in this 40, while well, I was 41, 40, 40, 41 years into 
at least in my agency, it's becoming very seriously more addressed. And now they're looking to do more with it. And there's part of the problem is, is there's only so much they can do. And some people are taking advantage of it. They've offered a lot of programs. We have medical, uh, we have a nurse that's, that offers nutrition stuff programs. You've got the EAP for psychological. We oh. now have, we offer jujitsu and, and we have a physical, physical therapist, but a uh, trainer, somebody certified to train who's willing to, to sit down and give people workout routines to, to help keep ourselves physically strong and also work towards your mental health as well. But. And how is that received? It's starting to become more received than it used to be. And, and I am actually, I'm really surprised. Like I said, as a supervisor, one of my focuses is my guys, making sure my guys and gals, making sure that they're, 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 they're not slipping through the cracks. And surprisingly enough, a lot of them are a lot more forward even nowadays. A lot of them are actually coming to us and saying, Hey, I've got this going on and I've got this going on and, and so then I'm like, well, let's talk. And then we start trying to get them into these areas and into these resources. And I, I had a guy that was really suffering a lot because we had a, a, a child death or drowning, pulled the kid out of the, this, pulled the kid out of the water and we tried to resuscitate, couldn't resuscitate. And he was a brand new rookie. And it just, it, it was almost a year to the date after it happened. He really started suffering some serious mental setbacks, traumas. And it was just, it, it was becoming very apparent. So we started giving him time, gave him time off, got him to you know, see a therapist, really working, work, you know, did a lot of things that back in the day would never be dreamt of. We were focused on, dude, we're going to give you the time you need to try to heal. And we even allowed him to come back and do light duty, even though there was no physical injury. It was a mental injury in my mind and, and same thing for the lieutenant's mind is we agreed that let's get him back because he needs to be at work. He, he, some of the process, if you totally stop work, that can also create stress on the, on an individual. Oh yeah. Let's give him some work. Let's give him, we'll bring him out. We'll put him in the office and let him do some things and give him some work here at the office. But let's give him the chance to, Hey, I need to go home earlier. I need to do this. Let him get out of here. And I even now I, I do heavy spot checks. I try to spot check my guys when we're in a traumatic situation. We even clear a scene. I'm like, Hey, how are you? Are you doing okay? And I had a, we had a, a suicide at a couple, about a month back and it was not a clean one, but it was, it was something. And, and one of the deputies, it was their first time ever seeing one in, in over like almost two years of being a deputy. And I told him, I'm like, I said, listen, I said, how are you? Are you doing okay? Is it, it are you feeling anything about it? I'm not going through it. Cause I'm like, listen, don't, if you start feeling stuff, if it's bothering you, let us know. Don't let it build up. Don't let it, don't compartmentalize. We were, we're bad about that in the old days. We compartmentalize the shit out of everything. Hey, what do you do with it? That box can only take so much shit until it eventually is going to overflow. And that's my goal is to keep them overflow. And th so you get a good mixed response. You get some people that respond, some people that I, I had to assume that there's some people that, who are still hesitant to, to respond. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, there's still some that are, they're, they're hesitant, but I'm starting to see more. And I don't know if it's a generational thing or if it is it because we now have more out there and we're saying we're more open to it, but they're starting to be more, they're starting to be more that are open to it than not. I actually had a case where we had to Baker Act uh, another law enforcement officer several months back. And I pulled his department aside because they had responded to the scene after we got in contact with them. And I said, listen, what are you guys going to do to help him? And they're like, no, we are hundred percent behind him. We're going to give him support. We're going to do this. And then I had to go in there and explain this to this guy. I'm like, listen, this is not the end, man. We all suffer these things. You need to take advantage of this. Unfortunately, we're going to go to a facility, but take advantage of it. And I had learned that we had a facility that was this geared towards law enforcement and firefighters in up in up near SeaWorld. And I was like, well, I told my, I'm like, told my deputy, I'm like, we're going all the way. I don't care how far I'm drive later. We're taking them there. What's the name of that place? Can't remember the name. I have to, it's to I, remember the name. Because I did an interview with a, with a firefighter from Central Florida who <clears throat> who brought up the subject of UCF's program, which is called Restores. And I didn't, yes. I didn't know if that was related to that at all. I I think that is is related to it. Yeah, because I think it is an offshoot of UCF. And yeah, they're focused on first responders. Their, their primary goal. Because here was the other thing we ran into this year is if I come out and I say, I need help, and I say those magic words, or I say the combination of some magic words, it lands 
So we need to have to do a Baker Act, which is an involuntary admission. I'm going to take you and put you in a facility where you've probably taken numerous people and put them in and put you in with them when you're in mental crisis. Yeah, no. That's just not good. It's just not a good place. No. So it was really cool that we had this option to do that. Something that was geared towards, they only take first responders. They don't take outside individuals and they have doctors and staff that are geared towards first responders and, and, and military. Yeah. And that's the key. And that's another key is a lot of us say, I don't want to talk to somebody that doesn't understand. Yeah. And it's huge. I've seen, like I said, a couple of different therapists and you get in there and they just, they don't understand what it's like to be in the position we're in, unless they were a veteran or a, a retired law enforcement or firefighter. They don't understand the different stressors in life, the lifestyles that we live and have to go through. You know, even if they probably have a decent idea on it, we don't see that they have a good decent. Where are you today in general? How's life today? Life it is good. It's getting better. Uh, like I said, the dog, the, 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 jujitsu, finding these different meditations, going through daily meditative routines. They're really starting to, to, to help me bring in to where I need to be still on medications, still looking, like I said, I, I still want to see a therapist more consistently, but things are getting better as I realize and part of that, that healing process is me coming forward even right now and telling the story to, to, to you and, and, to, and to your listeners, because Nobody's ever been told all this from me. Yeah. That's what you said. You've never laid this out from A to, to Z. Correct. It is. This is a first time ever. And, and, even and people should know that we condensed this a lot because you, you had many stories you could have told, but. Oh yeah. I, I mean, yeah. <laughs> many stories you could have told. Yeah. Yeah. For, yeah. All the many years, there's just a lot. <laughs> But this is, this is, this is beneficial for me too, because it's sharing my story and hoping that story will give others just listening to your podcast. When I first found it, it was like, wow, man, that's me. Wow. That's it. it and I'm not the only one. And, and there's, there is an end, there is a solution. There is a healthy resolve to this versus an unhealthy resolve. A lot of us go down. Yeah. And that's the goal here is to make people aware of the healthy resolution as opposed to whatever the other options are. Let's put it that way. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm going to ask you my two questions now to, to wrap this up. First one being an everyday carry. And I know you, as a cop, you have a lot that you carry every day, <laughs> yeah. but it doesn't have to be job related. It can be, it can be outside of work as well. So what's something you feel naked without, if you leave the home without it? Unfortunately, it is very much job related. I do every day. I can't leave the home without it is, is my tattoos, big on the tattoos. And I know you, you did a whole podcast on that with uh, the tattoos and telling life stories and and even being able to talk to your artists. And that's almost a therapy process itself. Indeed. Also, my weapon, my my pocket knives, I carry those, my badge. Those are always with me. I feel very naked. With, it's so bad that when I run, I have a smaller firearm I carry with me when I go running. <laughs> but I try to minimalize all what I carry, but those are what I typically carry. Okay. What about a book? You got a book you can suggest to the, to the, I am an avid reader and I could probably suggest a hundred books because my <laughs> wife is always mad because I have more books than I do space to store them oftentimes, but I actually am a huge fan of Jocko and Leaf, uh, Babbitt. And I think these two books should automatically be in, in one is the extreme ownership and the dichotomy of leadership. And I think those two, not only are they effective reads for people that are veterans in law enforcement and first responders. But they also, those same type of lessons can be taken into the home. And then I'm now finishing up another one called Discipline. And it's also by uh, Jocko Willink. Discipline equals freedom field manual. That one goes a lot into mental endurance, discipline, and they even had breaks down workout routines, feeding, uh, yeah, what to eat, healthy living, and strength of will. So it's in two sections. One's in the, all about the mind. And the other is all about the physical, the physical. Awesome. I will link those in the show notes. I know that extreme ownership has been mentioned before and though discipline equals freedom, we, that has not been brought up. Not that I remember, but you know, I could be right. wrong, man. I, I appreciate this conversation. 
Um, oh, thank this you. Was a, this on. was my first step into the law enforcement world, and and uh, you didn't disappoint. Absolutely, I appreciate it. Like I said, it's it my chance to to put it out there. Like I said, hopefully uh, it will help somebody else. And, and I love this podcast, man. You're one of the few I listen to consistently. So. I appreciate it. I, I do appreciate it. Just just spread the word for me. That's all I ask. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Cool. I will let you get on with the rest of your day. And like I said, this will, this will be coming up pretty soon. I'll let you know and, and see where it goes from there. Awesome, brother. I appreciate it. All right, man. Take care. Hey, you too. Take care. All right, we're out. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Things We All Carry. Head over to the website, thethingsweallcarry.com, for show notes, resources, and to sign up for the newsletter. Until next week, take care of yourselves and remember to check in on each other. <laughs>